0: Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. This is Jason in Brooklyn. You know, one day not too long ago, probably about 400 dawns ago or less, I was driving in my car and I had this real good idea. And I said to myself, why don't I get my chums together and we can talk about Galaxy 4, the DVD and the new animation, all chumbly-like. So let me introduce the rest of my panel, if they haven't finished glaring daggers at me for that horrible intro. (laughs) Who's my panel today?
1: Hello, it's Sai.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm Pete, and I don't have a sound effect. <laughs> Ruining it already. I'm Trey, and yeah, I can't um, beat the chumbly noise, so... Okay. But I do make that noise to my cat
0: sometimes,
2: so... and <laughs> <laughs> I was watching, it, like the cat was all interested in the sound effects, so...
0: You know the most amazing thing about the, the DVD is that you have Brian Hodgson on the making of documentary performing all of the Chumbly sounds and translating what they mean, which is amazing that he had that whole dialogue and language in his head because I had no idea. I just thought they were random noises.
3: <laughs> it's amazing. He should have his own stage at Glastonbury and one of the little breakout, uh, one of the little breakout tents. I think just, just a, a Chumbly stage one they would go down very well. Particularly so with people in a certain mental condition after, after the full Glastonbury experience.
0: In Chumbly speak, Si, uh, what were you trying to say to us just there?
1: Um, hello and welcome to the Trap One podcast. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> um, and... but yeah, uh, I think the sound effects are the best thing about this story, <laughs> but we'll get on to that shortly, I'm sure. <laughs>
0: Um, sure we have a newcomer a first timer to the trap one family today trey why don't you tell us a few words about yourself um well um
2: my name is trey corte and i am a doctor who fan since 84 and so um just gotten really involved in fandom and um then as you can see i've been collecting the targets and since forever i do all the big finish audios so i'm into all of that um made a lot of online friends through fandom and then meeting them at the conventions because i think i've known jason since the rec arts days in the 90s so we're where we would argue about the new adventures old (laughs) times quite a bit yes yes (laughs) so um yeah i and then the convention circuit has meant that i've met a lot of people in real life and so i've just become part of the community and i've guested on several of the doctor who target book club podcast and um, where they read them all in story order so um, this is the first time i'm doing a trap one podcast well welcome aboard yeah Thank trey you. and
0: i met a couple of times at the visions in chicago back in the 90s but the running gag is that we're always at galley almost every year and we have yet to run into each other because galley is that big so <laughs> we'll try and rectify that for 2023 for sure Oh, Jason, you're slacking. Even I met Trey at the one galley that I have
1: been to. So come on, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is a large con with a lot of programming, and I just don't have my algorithms <laughs> down in order. I'm I'm more of a dravin than a real when it comes to navigating Gallifrey One <laughs> in my broken down spaceship. So we're talking today, of course, about the recent DVD slash Blu-ray release of the uh, Galaxy Four and. Simon was holding up his copy earlier. He has the very fancy Steelbook, British edition. I have my cheap American Region A release, and it's a plastic blue clamshell. So, Cy has me put to shame.
1: Yeah, I, the steel books are just gorgeous. I've um, um, made sure that I've collected all of them for the animations because they've all been beautiful in different ways. But I really love this one. I really love... Um, like we've got, I think, TV comic Hartnell looking over the back. Back cover art,
3: uh, yeah, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. It's, an, it's an unusual view, isn't it? The back of his head, but, yes. but sort of gazing across the, the, the savannah savanna in front of him, sort of really saying that this, yeah, this is a uh, on a different a different palette and a different scale to what we're used to.
0: So, what's notable about Galaxy Four is that we only have about a quarter of Episode One and all of Episode Three surviving. So, what they've done is they've gone and they've animated the whole thing. So you can watch this story in several tracks. You can watch the animation in black and white, the way the story was meant to be seen in 1965. You can watch the surviving footage and reconstructed versions of the missing episodes if you are a purist. Or if you want to go full on 21st century, you can watch the entire story in color. So uh, we'll go around the horn from Trey to Cy to Pete. Which version of Galaxy 4 did you choose to watch first on the DVD?
2: Um, I the color version because I had already seen, you know, the existing episode and the footage. And um the existing episode appeared on the one um it was like a bonus feature for like Aztec special edition. They even had like a truncated um reconstruction of it. So I wanted to go full color. It's like for me, I like how they can expand the storyline with the animation. If I want to see a reconstruction, I'll watch the reconstruction. So if we're going to do animated, let's go completely all out and see how far they can push the limits. And I know that's a point of disagreement with some fans, but I'm all for it.
1: I'm exactly the same. I jumped straight into the color version um, without a doubt. Color, sixteen nine, Yeah, it's beautiful. I think... Especially because where they're making these animations that's the version that they're working on as the definitive version or um so they say um and then they cut it down and black and white it um sort of afterwards so which is sort of the opposite of what we usually get of color <laughs> of colorizations so i I think because the animators intend it to be sixty nine in color and good on them for doing that and not being slavishly um Sixty-nine, black and white. I, I think that's the way to go. I'm, I'm a later convert to this. It was actually the Evil of the Daleks release
3: that I was the first one that I watched in colour all the way through. Uh, be, uh, for precisely the reasons that you've just set out. Prior to that, I was much more. Uh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think the black and white era of Doctor Who. It it is missing colours. I like I like its black and whiteness. So I did tend to go to that first. Uh, but for, but for a rewatch before recording this, I've I've gone in and, and done the full colour thing. Yeah, including watching. when the first time I watched it, I also I watched the uh, the live action existing episode. Uh, but this this time I, I submerged myself in its um, in its peach and orange. Um, uh, savannah uh to to the max which actually yeah it does work better with the cartoon because I you're saying that that's that's how it's really envisaged by this this version's creators isn't it
0: so for my part i had just watched the story about a little less than a year and a half ago for my pilgrimage i would have hit galaxy for probably in november or early december 2020 and at that time i had the year, mm-hmm. Surviving bits of episode one, all of episode three, and then I had the loose cannon uh, recon for the rest of the story on daily motion. Now, my pilgrimage was accidentally timed so that I was able to watch a lot of the and animations as they came out. So I was able to slot in Macro Terror and Fury from the Deep. When I was doing that, I was the traditionalist, and I chose to watch those in black and white because I was watching the pilgrimage in part to get the sense of the visual evolution of the show, and I didn't want to mess with that by going in color. Mm. Now, with Galaxy 4 coming out in 2022, and I am deep into the Stephen Moffat era by now for my pilgrimage, I didn't have any worry about being a purist or about messing with the visual aesthetic. So I went straight to the color 16 by 9 and it was just absolutely Gorgeous. Now, we'll talk a little bit about the direction later and about the visual look. Uh, I think the direction in the original black and white is superior. We'll certainly come back and explore that theme. But the color scheme was so pleasing to the eye and it stimulated all the right endorphins that I was just in a blissful state pretty much for the entire story, starting from the, the color scheme. And Gary Russell talks about this on the audio commentary choosing deliberately a very uh, mid-60s, non-psychedelic color scheme, which is why they went with orange for the opening credits. And as far as I'm concerned, that should just be the, you know, Hartnell opening credits from now on, this particular color version here. So I was really delighted uh, with the animation. Going in the same order, did you guys watch the rest of the presentations on the DVD? Did you watch the black and white? Did you watch the recons?
2: Um, I didn't watch the black and white. I did watch the recon.
0: Now, are these like the same as the loose cannon recon or is this just, you know, a collection of telesnaps with a uh, text scrolling across the bottom of the screen without the loose cannons, little um, attempts at animating some of these still material.
2: Um, I can't really remember cause I wasn't paying that close attention. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's uh. just how me with recons. Cause like, I want to see what the visual is and then, uh, I mean, the story itself, um, once you know the story, there's a lot of padding in it, I think. Um, and so just seeing the same sort of stills kind of bouncing around, it, I ended up like, I was like looking at my phone and then doing, you know, <laughs> other things. So um, I did, you know, I, I tend to watch it, the, I, episode three holds my attention because of the direction that you alluded to earlier. But um, yeah, the rest of the reconstruction, I was just kind of like, oh, it's there. So, And it's not like I've done close studies of the loose cannon, so I really can't compare it.
0: And what's left on daily motion is kind of blurry and kind of low res. So as great as the loose cannon recons were 15 years ago when VHS was the state of the art, on daily motion, it is kind of challenging to watch because the audio is fuzzy and the picture's furry fuzzy, and it's uh, a little hard to pay the attention that I used to. And Si and then Pete, how about you? Do you guys uh, go the whole hog and watch the story three different times over on DVD?
1: No, <laughs> I watched. I actually watched the animation in black and white, but with the commentaries. So when I did the commentaries, I watched the black and white version of the animations, which I have to say. I didn't enjoy it as much as the full colour experience, to be honest. So, but I don't know whether that was because it was divorced from the soundtrack um, and it was the commentary as well. But um, yeah, it just didn't work quite so well in black and white for me, I suppose, because the colour was so vibrant and wonderful that, um, yeah, it just wasn't quite the same. And also, but I didn't dip into the recon this time because this is one story that doesn't have any telesnaps because we're into the John Wiles era and he never, he just didn't pay for any telesnaps. So we don't have the visual representation. So most of it is going to be faked up. And I just find that even more irritating than the telesnap reconstructions <laughs> because you've got bodies placed sort of awkwardly where they're trying. I I can see how clever and brilliant they are at making something out of nothing, but that feels even more false than the animation to me so it's not not something i'm particularly keen to to go and even though they've got lovely cgi chumblies bouncing around
0: <laughs> uh, i'll just <laughs> say uh, one quick point is that when you're watching the audio commentary sometimes the audio commentary is scene specific and you need to have the visuals on but in this particular disc, it's basically interviews that it's not episode specific commentary. Just think of it as a 25 minute interview. Yeah. And having the visuals on can be a little bit of a distraction. And I do want to make the point that when Loose Cannon did the recon, they had not seen the recovered episode three yet. So they didn't know that mm-hmm. the chumblies had internal lights and that the bits on top moved. So their chumblies are much less animated than the actual <laughs> real life chumblies. So what we get here is a little bit superior. And, Pete, how about you? Did you watch the entire disc, all three versions of the story? Uh,
3: not yet, but I'm, I'll be getting there. <laughs> Maybe someday. But no, it's, it varies from story to story. But for some, particularly with Troutman stories, uh, my favorite way uh, – this is this sounds so hipster and boho – but my favorite way to enjoy a uh, non-existent black and white Doctor two stories, if there are telesnaps, is having a telesnap reconstruction while listening to the narrated – CDs with a with a narrator on it because that can really put some juice into a story. What you know, the doctor walks across a room, which in a telesnap is going to, I'm sorry, which with the loose cannon will be a little cut out of the doctor moving across the screen. Whereas when you've got a a narrator they can say you know with anguish and anxiety he made his way across the room <laughs> it's like give, gives you something uh, and something that i mean looking at a still picture of patrick truant's face for 5 seconds is is still a more fascinating experience than many animators or other animate actual moving actors could could do because is just truant has that amazing face but for this one it it's much more talky and much more um back and forth uh sort of plot wise so having yeah having something really pretty to look at on screen
2: that's a bright color is is the is the nicest way of doing it i I really like how you brought up um that way of watching it and that's one of the things i've really liked about like the animated releases where they give the option of doing the reconstruction just the pure soundtrack or the you know i think they attach the what had been released in the early 2000s on cd those narrated things and you can do exactly that and that's my preferred method of watching them as well and I really really appreciate that option <clears throat> which that the I, which, hybrid all along. <laughs> which I'm wondering you know like when they finally get to releasing the collection blu rays you know how all of that will you know play out so um, i'm I 100 percent agree with you i don't think it's too hipster at all because that's that is the best way to experience it but i do like the connoisseur connoisseur right
0: so let's take a step back galaxy four if you were to rank the entirety of doctor who from 1963 to the present galaxy four is not going to be showing up in the top quarter of many people's lists and if you were to rank all the Hardinal stories Again, Galaxy 4 is probably going to fall somewhere in the third tier, if not the fourth tier entirely, but that's a generality, and of course, I have a much more interesting panel today, so I want to explore with you guys, what were your guys' original exposures to Galaxy 4, whether you came to it via the book first, or the narrated CD soundtrack, or the recons, and then, uh, second question, you can answer at the same time, did watching the DVD change your original opinion of the story. And we'll go on the same order. Trey, then Cy then Pete.
2: Okay, so my first exposure to Galaxy 4 was um at Boy Scout camp with the novelization. Um so you know, we had to have like quiet reading times and I had packed some new Doctor Who books, and I really liked the cover because of the colors. And so and I liked, and at the time, you know, I was about uh, 10. And so I liked, I liked the message, even though, you know, it's clearly signposted of, you know, pretty people might not be nice and ugly people might be actually quite good. And um, as I was dealing with my own crap as a kid of, you know, I want to be popular, man, you know, all that, it, it spoke to me. So I liked it, but it's not, it wasn't one that I could ever watch. So I remember seeing the clip, the, not the one that had been released, but like the full longer clip of episode one and just, being enhan- entranced by how the Chumblys moved, and then I think I got the narrated soundtrack on CD, and I found that very tedious. Um, it's just you know the boop, boop, you know, especially when you get to episode four, and there's just a lot of back and forth. So I, I never really ranked it, and then of course Airlock got discovered, and of course I had to watch it as soon as possible, and. Um, It was, I can't remember Chicago Tartar's at Gallifrey, but they premiered um, it in America there. Like um, Steve from, I think from one of the restoration or DVD guys was a guest and he did a special showing of it. And that's when I was like, visually, like, I think it was the flashback sequence with MAGA, you know, and you shooting the... Draven, and just some of the cool, like, to camera deliveries of it. And then I thought, oh, this might be really interesting to see. Not unlike when we got Enemy of the World recovered, you know? And it was like, all of a sudden, the visuals made it, created this huge reevaluation of the story. Um, and so I like it, but I I don't... It's it's a two-parter. It should be a two-parter. Um, it's sweet. It's too... Inoffensive and, and charming to be like, oh, this is awful, Doctor Who, you know, you know, like <laughs> it's 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 not a there is... He was doing a stopping mo- you know, <laughs> it, motion, that it's it's just, there, it's just <laughs> kind of there. And I think that, you know, anyone who did finally remember it, I think it probably has to do with the design of the Chumblies. Mm-hmm. Um, may and the um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Martinez, Martinus, but Martinus. His dire- Martinez, his direction, you know, he does some cool things in all the stories that he directs. And so it's it's kind of there for me. I don't know whether I'd place it on a tier, but um I've reappreciated appreciated now because of this release, and so I have a bit more respect for it. But I've I've never been like, ew, I hate it, but it's it's a good one to have on the background when I'm like grading papers or doing some other things because I don't have to pay attention to it too much.
1: Yeah, so for me, I remember exactly where. I was um, and um, when I got when I first encountered Galaxy 4 it was my 11th birthday and it was a bir- the book was a birthday present from my brother and sister on my 11th birthday and I remember tucking that in my school bag on the day that I went to visit my secondary school for the very first time so there we go it's all all very much sort of um yeah um yeah just remembered really well. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember reading the book and then never reading the book a second time. (laughs) So um, it was just sort of there. But I fell in love with the story when I heard the the narrated soundtrack for the first time. So that would have been around 2000, I think. Um, And it is a really simple story, but I just fell in love with the soundtrack of it. So you've got the weird... And um, brilliant um, Les Structure Sonore um, soundtrack um, are sort of used as the in- incidental music. So um, who Verity Lambert had wanted to do the original theme back in 1963. So the music sounds weird. And then Brian Hodgson is doing the most amazing sound effects all the way through. And I know Trey was just saying that that was a bit annoying after a while, but i was just sort of carried away with that. And I just sort of got that and when you've got Peter Purvis narrating the story to you sort of in between bits as well and you can listen to him all day I mean he's a voice from from my childhood in the UK here so you know he's he's a great storyteller and he's so great at fitting his narration exactly into the few seconds that he's got to do it and and it's perfect and I just thought you know what I just really like this story and then um I obviously saw the um episode when it was recovered. So for nefarious means, a friend sent me a copy very quickly after it was recovered. And I've never asked questions why. I just had a DVD arrive in the post that said Doctor Who for Simon. So um, with with the two episodes that recovered that that time. And yeah, and then the animation is... Yeah, I just really... I, I like it. I I would put it in my top half of Heartness, which I know is, is probably insane, but I just... It's just... A nice story, and it's not demanding, but we've got one of the the two or three stories with the Doctor, Stephen, and Vicky, who are a fantastic TARDIS team and should have had far, far longer together than they actually do. They this You wouldn't think this is their second story. They feel like a cohesive team already. So just for that reason, and Vicky cutting Stephen's hair at the start of it, like... They're just in the TARDIS forever, and just yeah, I, yeah, I love all that domesticity between them all. How about you, Pete? i um, not that different to your, yourself. Yeah, being being a bit older, I was about fourteen,
3: I think, when the book came out, and my tar- my 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 my, uh, my concentration on the targets was waning by that point. So I skim read it, I think, without it making all that much of an impression. And that, but then it was when the audio came out in two thousand that I, I sort of felt like I was discovering it for the first time. Uh, and I like really like the 1950s sort of vibe that it gave off. It feels like one of those and anth- an episode from any anthology. I don't know. It could be an Outer Limits episode or something like that. It, 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 it's got a very unusual feel to it. And there's some odd dialogue from the doctor that feels much more like comic strip dialogue than, than, than uh, regular TV dialogue. Um, To be honest, I wouldn't put it in my top half of season three um, because it, it's, it's, but I like that it's there. It's that, it's that it's an oddity. It's, it's just very different to what's, what's around it. So uh, yeah, that's, that's how I found my way to it.
0: I think my exposure to the story is very similar uh, to you guys. I came to it via the novelization first and I was probably a little bit older than Cy, but a little younger than Pete when I got it, probably about 12 years old. We used to go as a family to this kosher-style deli on Long Island every Friday night, and it was in a strip mall, you know, as, as, as you do when you're growing up in suburbia. And next door to the deli, there was a comic book shop that opened for about, it was open for maybe not even a year, but I got a lot of Doctor Who material in there because there was a sign in the window advertising what they had, and Doctor Who was written right there in the window, which you weren't seeing a lot of Doctor Who advertised in the window in America in the 1980s. So I ran into that shop immediately. And I know I got several issues of the short-lived Marvel Doctor Who U.S. comic, which only ran for about 23 issues. I got a few issues of that. I ended up getting Doctor Who, a celebration there. And the very first book that I bought there would have been the Galaxy 4 novelization. What I loved about it uh, at age 12 is that it broke down the story into four chapters with the cliffhangers intact. And the biggest concern that I had in the mid-'80s is that I didn't have these stories to watch. I didn't know where the cliffhangers were, and I didn't know where to mark them off in my book. And this was a big problem. (laughs) So I had to guess where I would leave off reading each night. And I was always getting the cliffhangers wrong (laughs) because I was dividing up the books by page count. And especially with Terrence Dix or Malcolm Hawk, they always put a lot more page count into episode one than episode four or five. So I never knew where to leave off. And then Marco Polo, of course, is problematic because uh, Luca Wrighti changes the back half of the story so that the cliffhangers aren't even there for episodes five or six. So what's great about Galaxy 4 is that it's four chapters and you know exactly where the cliffhangers are and he got them right. So I was tremendously appreciative of that. Plus, it's a simple, straightforward story that the story tells itself. I think... Because he's writing this in the mid-80s, I believe there is a reference to Hartnell's impending regeneration, I think, which would have been fascinating to me as a kid, even though, of course, it's not in the original televised story. So I love the book inordinately in 1985 or 86 or whatever the year was. Um, As I got older, and I hesitate to use the word, so I will use it advisedly, as I got a little more sophisticated, the book became harder and harder to read because it's clear that M's... In the English language, are not exactly on speaking terms, and there are. Which some is ironic because
1: he was an English teacher. <laughs> you know? would think, right?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not as bad as um, other novelizations by one-time one-time Hartnell writers, but there are passages mm. in the book that are not exactly uh, readable. So I became less enamored of the novelization over time, to the extent that. I know where I was in 2011 when they announced that these two orphan episodes had been recovered. I was much more excited for Underwater Menace 2 than I was for Galaxy 4 Part 3. By that point, I'd already dismissed the story in my head as childish and boring, and I was a lot more excited to see Joseph first and Patrick Troughton. Then, because it took them forever to release Underwater Menace commercially – I ended up seeing Galaxy 4 first, and I was, uh, this is going to sound a lot like what Trey said, I was blown away by Derek Martinez's direction, and it just completely elevated the story for me, because you have live flashbacks in studio in the middle of the story, you have Stephanie Bidmead's soliloquies to the camera, which are incredible, and you have the chumblings, which are a lot more interesting visually than anybody else would have realized, and I'll tell you this, uh, Trey will get this uh, growing up in the States. I couldn't picture as a kid what the Rills would have looked like. So my brain, in 1986, substituted in Snuffleupagus from Sesame Street. <laughs> that was how I, I pictured the Rills. I, I, I saw them as uh, – because
2: I, I had imagined them as like the Dune Guild Navigators from the David Lynch film. Mm. Because they're in that that's tank, a, yeah. And it's that's, kind of, they're kind of warthoggy, walrusy things, and that was, <laughs> and that movie was like fresh in my mind when yeah. it came out. So that's that's where that was my go-to for them. But I like. Because yeah,
1: famously in in the eighties, this was the one Doctor Who monster that we didn't have a photo of at all. Yeah, And good. So um, one I think turned up sometime in the early nineties, which no one had ever seen. No one knew unless you'd seen it originally, what a real looked like. So we only had the descriptions in the book and sort of vague memories that people had from the time of what, what they actually were. So, yeah, I, growing up, I had no idea. No. I can't remember sort of... Actually, I can't even remember ever thinking about the reels, to be honest. did <laughs> you really lose
3: my sleep over this? Because
1: yeah. it. <laughs> it was just another unknowable thing about Doctor Who, because in the UK, we never saw any old Doctor Who. So the vast proportion of Doctor Who, for me growing up, was just unknowable and just from what I could pick up from the Target books and what was in my head and the few photos those that were badly printed in Doctor Who monthly at the time. So... Sort of trying to piece and something that was completely unknowable just seemed like a complete waste of time, to be honest. Because I'd never, Galaxy 4 didn't exist, so I was never going to see it. So, yeah, it was just one of those things.
0: One of the things that I happen to love about the DVD packaging, and si, I don't know if you're going to have access to this with the Steelbook. But on the back cover of the U.S. release, they give the episode credits. So the writer, the original director, the animation director, uh, the producers of, again, the original and the animated. And then it gives the cast list, starring William Hartnell, Maureen O'Brien, Peter Purvis, and Stephanie Bidmead. So Stephanie Bidmead is giving given starring credit on the DVD case, even though she was a one-off villain. And I think that's a terrific, terrific choice because she is such a good villain in this story uh, just especially the way she's directed and the way she delivers her lines. she's philosophical uh, i really had a new appreciation for maga that, that's a word that's taken on a dreadful significance here in the states yeah. over the last well, five six it, years it yeah. kind of works too it
2: was
3: the uh, it was the margaret thatcher comparison in the 80s yes who, um this uh, this steely, emotionless creature who, who secretly enjoys uh, watching, flinging people to their doom. Yeah, it's um, it's adap- an adaptable performance in different contexts yes. in terms of what it can represent. Yeah, and just just seeing that someone just explaining it. it's very it's a bit um okay i'm over it perhaps but richard the third does spring to mind when he turns to the audience and explains to them that he's going to be evil now because he hates these people and he's going to make damn sure they all are ha- 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 met with disaster it, and that's that's the, the playbook that they're reaching for i think uh it's not a not not villainy that's going to be gradually exposed she's literally Turning to screen and telling you, uh, and it's it's really yeah that that's really really striking moment for for Doctor Who because we haven't really had a villain do quite like that before had we at all?
2: I think so no. not not quite not quite um, in that style. I think it's there's a bit with John Ringham as Tlotoxel, where he kind of yeah. like yes. faces a yeah, camera a yeah, bit funny. and does some a yeah. little bit of that. That's that's right. So yeah.
1: we've never had a weary villain like this. She is so. She is so weary of being stuck with these three stupid clones, basically. Oh, There's stupidity.
2: Yeah. And like trying to reason with them and they can't because, I mean, you talk about the relevance, you know, trying to reason with them and you feel like you're getting somewhere, but then they, they're just so trusting of the MAGA movement that they, you, they just go back and follow orders. I mean, you you can make all of the MAGA jokes you want, but that is exactly what we're dealing with in the States. (laughs) So, oh my gosh, you know, unintelligent people being a slut, you know, it's really (laughs) just being taken for whatever their leader tells them, it's and, just yeah.
1: And it's I love very her Christian.
2: And I love her delivery of it because it just is on the right side of that sort of camp Cervan mm. type you know element. And my favorite moments is in the surviving episode one clip where she, you know, she kind of leans in and she's like, "You too, my." And she gets like might be obliterated. She gets in her face, mm. and then another point. There's like a drama who's just kind of slumped, and she. And the, you know, the drama just kind of pops right up. And I, those moments, and that's what I want to see more of. And that's why I'd like to see the other three um, be rediscovered. Because I think there would be all those little character touches and little actor choices and director choices that would make it very interesting. Yes. Mm. I,
1: it's In some ways, it's quite an arch performance at times. Like the bit mm. where she says um, about the males performing no useful, uh, sort of other attributes and things like that. And she's just playing it almost knowingly, but not quite. It's just on, as Trey said, it's just on the right lines of, yeah, this is this could veer o- and topple over the top, but she judges it perfectly, so she never loses that that um, sort of evil demeanor, and you always know she, yeah, you, she's she's evil, she's
2: bad. <laughs> it is interesting because you have a streak of stories where the guest villain, you know in a row, is just kind of bored, um, because Lobos and Space Museum has that same sort of vibrant energy. Mm -hmm. The meddling monk is just kind of like, he's bored, so he just wants to do some mischief. Um, And, you know, there's even elements of it with um, In the Crusade, where, you know, both Saladin and Mm -hmm. Richard are both kind of like, we are so over this fighting. So I don't know what was going on, but, you know, kind of weary... Fed up villains, you know, is was the pattern of in there.
0: And this was the exact moment where Verity Lambert gave up on the show, moved on Ooh. to other things, was handing over the reins to John Wiles, who did not appreciate the show at all. So perhaps you can read a little bit of office uh, coworker fatigue into Verity Lambert's final stories there. So the next thing I want to talk about is how we compare the work of the animation to the surviving footage. We've talked about what a great job Derek Martinez did. This was his first Doctor Who. I think it was one of his first directing projects, period. And he was filling in for an ailing, and unfortunately towards the end of his life, Mervyn Pinfield. Uh, Now, I've always said that the beating heart of Doctor Who In the 60s was radical young people in their 20s reinventing the wheel between Verity Lambert and Wires Hussein, Derek Martinez, um, Michael Imison coming along in another year or so. So considering that these are small fourth wall productions and cramped TV studios on a micro budget, these radical young people are just giving us incredible work. And that's one of the reasons why I think Doctor Who has survived for so long, because you have all these youngsters breaking the mold when they're given the keys to the show. So let's compare that to the animation. Now, naturally, for this kind of 2D animation done on computers, you don't have the resources that Disney or Pixar is going to have. So you're not able to do incredibly sophisticated, innovative work. I was a little bit disappointed in the animation, not in the color scheme, certainly. I thought it was gorgeous to look at. But when you compare the direction to what Derek Martinez did – I don't think it's as imaginative. Everything is shot from long shot. Everything seems very small and shot from far off. Whereas when you look at Derek Martinez, it's very intimate. The camera's right up in everybody's face. They're all at close quarters. I think visually the show is more interesting in its original black and white incarnation. But I also realize that to say this is to be a grumpy old man, get off my lawn, stop messing with my Doctor Who. So I want to get an alternate take going around the table. Again, don't get me wrong. I love the animation. I love the color scheme. It was very soothing to watch. Um, I think that if they had stuck a little closer to the Derek Martinez camera script, I think that may have meant uh, for a better finished product. I'm just not sure if I'm alone in my old man rantings or if everyone else thought that the animation could have uh, taken this from a different angle. So let's go in reverse order for this half of the program. Pete, then Cy, then Trey
3: yeah i mean look, well not every doctor who story is going to it blows everything out of the water and and nor does every animation animated doctor who story and, and i know this one was done under much stricter time pressures than they've sometimes had on on others uh and it was chosen because it had a good quality soundtrack rather than because it would animate well particularly that's what um garisle says on the uh, on, on the commentary of episode one i think um but uh, but they still go at it with with, with gusto um the, and yeah i I think there are moments, particularly characters running across big planes, uh, it's a little bit Scooby-Doo. Um, <laughs> that sort of jars with the um, the, the the other. There. I don't think that was a stylistic choice. I think that was just as good as they could make it in the time and uh, available the way the legs go and stuff like that. So there's those limitations. Uh, there's some nice little touches though. One of my, one thing I just I noted that really liking was and I don't know if that this is sourced from anything or or, or was just a flair on their part. In episode one, where the Doctor first goes inside the driving ship, uh, Margot tells him to sit down, and he produces his little handkerchief and. Cleans the chair like Niles Crane or something before he'll yes. sit down on it. After commenting on what to, he um, doesn't say crappy. What does he? He says something actually Trash. quite un- trashy. <laughs> trashy. It? That's oh, it. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think yeah, that's like, later he comes out. Yeah, this is a your trashy spaceship. Uh, but the idea of, of, of having that, or hey, we'd call it cyberpunk now, wouldn't we? Or I don't know. No, not cyberpunk. But you know, this 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 rundown futurism uh, isn't something that we see every week in Doctor Who. So yeah, I, I I I'm basically circling around saying I pretty much agree with you on this one, Jason. But it has it still has its moments, as you've as you said yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What I found, um, there are are moments that are really good. So the fact that we see the space battle, which they wouldn't have put on the screen, but also what I found very distracting almost was um, the real spaceship. Particularly, um, there seem to be lots of big spaces with tiny characters in them so they're trying to make it seem epic in a way that it doesn't actually really need to be because i think they're doing it because they can rather than because there was any any story reason so where you've got in the existing part three the scenes in the real spaceship and they're all quite small and intimate suddenly you've got these huge great big halls of space and it doesn't doesn't quite work, I don't think. It doesn't work sort of in the same way. But I did like what they that they made Marga's um spaceship really run down in the way that the dialogue suggests it is, but on TV it just appears like it's made of wood. So yeah. how can you it's, tell? Yes, it's, it's a BBC spaceship from the 60s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's basically the 60s space. It's it's not that different from the sensor, um from the spaceship in the sensorites or or whatever so that sort of attention to detail and listening to the dialogue and thinking oh hang on we can do something that's a bit bit better than they did on tv There works but not all of it sort of paid off i agree again the the color i cannot fault the color scheme it reminds me very much of the tv 21 um dalek comic strips all of that sort of palette of colors they're always very orange and red and and things like that, and so that that works works brilliantly. But a lot of the aesthetics didn't quite come off this time. I don't think.
2: Um, <clears throat> I guess I've got a bit of a different take. I I really don't think you you can, or it's really fair to compare the direction um, of the live action versus the animation. I mean, it's. We're in a very, I think, almost unique situation where we have this situation of missing episodes being animated to the soundtracks. I don't know if there's other shows where there's even anything similar to this this dynamic. But when you think about the needs of live action, like all those things like I was talking about with Maga, the way she uses, she intrudes upon personal space, the you know the smirking, all that the the close ups that Martinez likes to do. I don't know if that translates well for animation. You know, I don't know if I want to look at big, long close-ups of Maga's face if we don't have the subtleties of Stephanie Bidmead's human performance that could never happen in animation. Whereas to Sai's point, like, yeah, I, I see what you're saying about the real ship being, you know, more epic and maybe it doesn't need to be. But then I also think... I like that they made that choice because not because I feel it needs to be more epic, but then it gives me more to look at on the screen. And so it's you know there's all these little animation details, and it and it helps suspend the disbel or fix the suspension of disbelief problems with the set, like in episode three when the great comes down and Vicky's like I can't get through when it's wobbling, and you could obviously just <laughs> crawl through it.
1: It's immovable.
2: No. No, those, those those sorts of things are you know fixed for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And so I think you have to approach it like what, you know, I think it would be more of a comparison as if like, um, if we had, if for some reason mission to the unknown were to survive in order to be recovered. And then we could compare that live action film episode that that student did what a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that's more of where a, a fair compare contrast sort of exercise can happen. But, um, the needs of animation is about the visuals, what are you looking at, and um, and especially a very talky piece. I mean, Reign of Terror went too far, you know, where they did all these weird cuts with the animation. But again, that was being done as trying to keep a very static scene moving um, for, for people. So I don't really know how to answer it. Um, I like the... You know, I think I would prefer to watch the live action version just based on the episode three. And I do think there's interesting things there. But I also think he's at an advantage because actors can do all sorts of things that um, they can't do as much as they try. And I think the Web of Fear episode three is a really good proof of that because they try to make that one as still as much as close to body movement as possible. But still like the dullness of the eyes, that lack of twinkle and sparkle Mm -hmm. and that spontaneity of the performances, you're you're just never going to get that with animation. So uh, unless you're going like Pixar and it's like really, really extreme. Um,
3: Then there's that, I forgot, there's that great um, planet zoom at the start of episode two, which is really spectacular. That that sort of uh, makes a huge impact at that point in story. On the cartoon, yeah.
0: So I'll just follow up on my original point with three quick hits, one good, one bad, one I'm not quite sure of. So the the good, obviously, is that you have reimagined uh, the way that the story looks. So like you say, you have the spaceship battle, which you would never have been able to do realistically in 1965. That is phenomenal, and it adds to the story. Uh, on the downside, we have access on the dvd to the text commentary and it tells us where the animation differs from what you would have seen had the story survived and there's this tantalizing description of the opening shot or what should have been the opening shot of part two which goes from an extreme close-up of maureen o'brien and then pulls all the way back i would love to have seen that and that might even have been good to see in animation and i'm sorry that we lost that and then the last point is, again, I'm not sure where I fall on this, the idea that all of the Dravens are now clones, except for MAGA, and that they're twice as tall as uh, the regulars. That is a great idea in theory, and I know I read about it on the production notes. I'm just not sure that it comes across as obvious as it could have been in the animation, because if this were a more intimate production, and the camera's right up close... Like Jodie Foster in The Elevator and Silence of the Lambs, where every other male FBI recruit is twice her size. It might have been really, really obvious. Uh, it just If the Dravins are meant to be nine feet tall, I didn't get the sense in the animation that they were. Maybe you guys saw it differently. I know they were trying to do it. I'm just not sure the idea entirely succeeds because the camera is so far back yeah. from the action and the animation.
3: Yeah, I'd read I'd read that before I saw it, so I don't know whether I would have noticed otherwise. There's the bit like there's a the bit where Stephen has a, a proper fight with one of them, and they end up rolling around on the ground. And I was fascinated to think uh, who who would have whether that would have been Ian or Barbara in the original draft of the script. But also having her bigger than him makes that a very different dynamic to him fighting with a woman who's smaller than him. Um, yeah.
0: So let's move then to the value-added material. One of the things that I love the most about the DVD range is the text commentary, the production notes. And when I watched my pilgrimage all the way through, at least the classic series portion, I had the text commentary on whenever it existed. So that's any DVD release for the first two doctors and then every single story from 1970 onward. I thought the production notes here were phenomenal they really added to my understanding of the story my enjoyment of the story like i said the differences between the live action original and the animation and talking about some of the behind the scenes stuff like it details the exact moment where john wiles decides to fire maureen o'brien who's this incredible Mm -hmm. gift of a performer and he decides to fire her out of spite (laughs) because of comments she made during the table read for the story which not that I had a whole lot of respect for John Wiles, but I certainly lost a lot more of it reading reading the text commentary. Did you guys watch with the text commentary on, and were there any interesting points that you gleaned from it? Again, going around in the same order: Pete, then Sly, then Trey.
3: I did the first time I watched it. I did, and I and uh, yeah, so I took in a, a few things that I didn't know any of them down this time because I rewatched with. Um, uh, without, because sometimes sometimes I get too drawn into the text commentary, and I realize I haven't actually, I've not been invested in these characters because I've been reading about the fact that three of the light bulbs failed that day, and been really fascinated by it, <laughs> and right. then uh, and then I have to go back and watch the scene again because oh, somebody was doing some really good acting in that one. Um, so no, I don't I don't have the best one picked out for this one, but um, yeah, I agree with your point. So generally, they they are uh, yeah quite quite transfixing sometimes.
1: Yeah, I I would let the side down and say. Um, because this was an, almost like coming to something new, I didn't actually watch with the production subtitles. With older Doctor Who, I I do stories I know sort of backwards. It's fine. It's not a distraction. I know the story well enough. But because this animation was new, I didn't watch with that this time. And I forgot to go back because then I, when I watched it the second time, ready to do this, I was watching with the commentary, so I was concentrating on what the commentators were saying, and so didn't put the production subtitles on then <laughs> either. So, um, and in fact, I've now realised that I haven't watched any of the animations with the production subtitles at all, and so this now gives me an excuse to go back and watch the whole lot all over again, which is a good for you. <laughs> yeah, that's value for money. Uh. Well,
2: yeah, I'm kind of in the same position um, because. It's very easy for me to get really excited. Like, you know, my the little boy in me comes out and it's like, oh, I got new Doctor Who DVDs and I want to like just snarf them all in one go. And then it's like, oh, now I have to wait months and months. Now as we're getting fewer classic releases, you know, it's not like we got one a month back in like the early 2000s. I haven't watched them because like, I want something to be able to go back to. And so there's... You know, there's like a bunch of like the new commentaries on the Blu rays that I haven't listened to yet, um, certain behind the scenes stuff. So I've I watched the documentaries on this one, but I haven't done the audio commentary or the production subtitles because that's a reason to go back to it.
0: I cannot recommend the production notes highly enough. Uh, they're usually done by Martin Wiggins for the older stories and Paul Schoons for, for the newer ones. I believe this was a Martin Wiggins disc and they're almost interchangeable because they're very funny. They comment on the story. They, they poke holes where they need to, but the level of detail that they give, I mean, the fact that we're still learning new things about the details of this production from 1965 is wonderful to have. So let's segue into the audio commentary then. And I guess I'll direct this at Pete and at Sai. I sometimes struggle to stay awake for the audio commentaries if it is a guest who is perhaps less interesting. I'm not going to name any names. There is one of the audio commentaries that I fell asleep in the middle of and missed the ending, and I'm not going to go back and finish. Um, I will say, I don't know if Maureen O'Brien did any commentaries for her stories 15 years ago when they came out with the original discs. I think this may be her commentary debut. It is wonderful hearing her memories and the way she was treated and and the way she reacted. Um, It was really great to hear that. And I thought she and Peter Purvis brought a very, very lively uh, spirit of feistiness to the commentary booth. Toby Haydock is a master at these things. I love hearing him moderate. He is terrific, brings the right approach. And Gary Russell's, uh, he only did uh, for part one, talking about his choice as a producer, also terrific to listen to. And I know that Gary Russell moderated some of the audio commentaries at the earlier end of the range before Toby Hato kind of took over. But to have a two of them in the booth was just really tremendous value added. How about you guys?
3: Yeah, they work really well as a double act, and, and that one with um with him with Gary Russell was really interesting to me. I often so I have a mixed I, I, I'm for all in favor of commentaries. I think they're brilliant, but nevertheless. Ten minutes into the most Doctor episodes that I'm watching with a commentary, I just want these people to shut up so I can watch Doctor Who, and they're talking over it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll have. The, I would much prefer it to be able to have when the range, DVD range very first started. You had the option of, of subtitles for the commentaries. I think they might have brought that back on the Blu-rays now. But for a long time, they only did it for the first few DVDs, and then they stopped doing it. So you could watch the story with just the, the commentary of the um, of the subtitle, of, uh, with just the subtitle of the commentary under it, which has some gems at the moment. There's a bit where... Jacqueline Pierce and the two doctors one is talking about how she got terrible uh, she calls it I got a terrible herpes spot on my yes. lip while we were in Spain <laughs> and this is coming on during a, during a scene between the two Santarans it's like <laughs> it's like they're confessing to each other uh, so that's a little magical moment to go to look out for but um yeah so so uh, commentaries are things that I kind of I've got them saved up for a rainy day mostly but um Peter Purvis is another one who is who is always great to listen to and like uh, Simon alluded to it earlier over here if, if you're British and of around our age he was be presented blue peter for 10 years from the mid 60s to the uh, late over 10 years to, to the late 70s um and it was one of those weird things when you when you discover as a child why well, he was in Doctor Who once. You know, it just seemed um, implausible. Uh, and uh, and, he, and he had really short hair because he had very long hair in the seventies. So having all of those, it, it it is a a fantastic collation of of, uh, of commentaries on this one, isn't it? It's yeah,
1: so really. it's, it's amazing. Um, the 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 varied people that they'd got sort of um, from both the production team originally, and the production team of the animation. It's a really nice mix. Um, what I really like, is, uh, listening to Peter Purvis, because he remembers everything. He remembers everything in exact details almost to the day that everything happened. And he's busy, he's there with Maureen O'Brien, who's got a vague recollection of things from because she was very young at the time but peter purvis is there saying oh no 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 maureen you 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 kind of got the scripts for the myth makers because you were making that at this time and and things like that so he's constantly correcting her which is is really really sort of nice and really really good and but it's done in a warm kind of way and he's he's um i love that he calls her mo (laughs) it's really lovely (laughs) um i love i i love the doctor who commentaries i that's being one of the things I've really enjoyed through the DVD range and the Blu-ray range of just hearing the people involved in these stories talk about what they remember or not, um, depending on who you've got on your commentary talking about this. And when you get people like Clive Doig and Brian Hodgson who are coming um, from a very different angle to this story's production, so sort of being there as the vision mixer and doing the special sounds for for a story and talking about that sort of 58, 59 years ago, um, 59, 58, 59 years on, and having these recollections of the people that they were working with that we wouldn't necessarily have got sort of otherwise. They're just really special and really, really warm. i I'd listened to all of these. I I love them.
0: And While we've been talking, I can see that Trey walked back to his DVD shelf and grabbed a whole handful of Maureen <laughs> I, O'Brien discs.
2: Yeah, and um, Trey is now did,
0: sitting here with a handful of Maureen O'Brien. Uh, <laughs> was she on any of those stories yes, that you're holding up now?
2: Uh, Space Museum and The Chase. So that um, double pack that had both of them, she's on both um, Space Museum in um, the chase. And cause I remember she was good. I remember thinking, I know I've heard her on a commentary and she's good value. And again, I haven't heard the galaxy form one, but I'll just say that I think the commentaries are great. And what I end up doing is I will put them on and not watch and just listen. And I need something to occupy. So I'll do like some sort of like artsy color by number project or a Lego set or something that, you know, and I, I just make it much more of an audio, a listening rather than a viewing because I do get distracted. I don't know what to look at. And it's, it's also something I can do while I'm doing housework, you know, or cleaning or, you know, I can listen to the audio commentary. So I think that's, um, but again, I really like it. And so this will definitely be something I do. It's just I haven't done it yet because I do enjoy them.
0: So that brings us to the two bonus documentaries that were produced for the disc. Uh, Chris Chapman does his usual incredible work with his reunions. But I want to talk about the other feature at first, because this introduces the man who actually had Galaxy 4 and the one missing episode from Underwater Menace in his home, not aware of what he was sitting on. And he kind of got discovered by the restoration team by accident. And he shows us the original film cans, and it shows us the day that he brought the cans in to be restored, and it shows us a little bit of the restoration process. That was just absolutely fascinating for me, that he bought these cans secondhand because he was a collector, and he didn't know much of the doctor who was missing, and he didn't realize that he had galaxy four and then after he returns galaxy four he goes back to his shelf and realizes he has another one and that's how we ended up getting underwater menace part two the uh, more of which on a later trap one hopefully so i was uh, really really enthused and that was actually the first of the two documentaries that i chose to watch and then i mean what else do you say about chris chapman he is the master of the form with these he gets everybody uh, he has the reunion or the little bit of a storyline going on. So it's more than just a collection of talking heads and close-ups of call sheets. He really gets to the heart of the story. So here you have Chris Chapman uh, filming with Toby Hato as the host inside Peter Purvis's home, which is fascinating. My favorite detail is that he's living in a 17th century home that's been restored. The only bit of Doctor Who memorabilia that Peter Purvis has kept is the loose cannon VHS mock-up. Of the Galaxy 4 loose cannon recon. I love that detail. <laughs> and then, of course, somebody actually built a chumbly, and there's a functioning chumbly trumbling around Peter Purvis's garden, uh, upstairs hallway. I love that. And there's <laughs> interviews with everybody Lynn Ashley, uh, who was one of the backup Dravins, and Maureen, or should I say, Mo O'Brien. That was just an absolute delight to watch. My one caveat is that I don't know who on the DVD restoration team has a fetish for old men's socks, but (laughs) between this and the behind the sofas, there's always a camera on the floor and you can always see much more than you need of the septuagenarian actors shins wearing these translucent, (laughs) uh, lightly colored socks. You see it a lot of it with uh, Tom Baker and John Leeson on the season 18 behind the sofa, Blu-ray and there is so much Peter Purvis sock from the floor cam in this one particular documentary that I'm surprised there's not a you know a whole series of websites devoted devoted to this. But <laughs> that was my only <laughs> reservation. Trey, coming to you first, what do you think of the two uh, documentaries here?
2: I I mean I I liked them a lot. I agree with everything you said about. Um, Chris Chapman's documentaries on these. I mean, you talk about value-added material. These really are value-added, and I think as Doctor Who fans, when you just compare what other special features appear on so many other stuff, it's just we, we're we're really blessed, you know, as far as that we have fans who work on these and they know what we like. Um, I found the one, and I, I forget the collector's name. Um, I it, it kind of turned some. Weird emotions in me because I was thinking like, oh, my gosh, this is an episode of Hoarders. And <laughs> like, you know, when they say they're a collector, but they don't they they collect and they but they don't look into what it is they've collect like that mm. sort of process is a really strange Thing for me, like, why would you collect something and not know what it is? So, part of me was like, "How could you not know you had this <laughs> Doctor Who episode?" And then, it, then of course, my mind was like wondering, like, and then you, they see a little bit inside his house, he's got all these cans. Like, what other gems do you have that people want? And how many of these other hoarders are there? And do they, you know, I, I mean, I know that civil liberties are important, but there's a part of me that wants like the aggressive, you know, arm of <laughs> the, the greater archives <laughs> to like break in and go through, you know, you know, maybe they don't have to go out all the way to Africa to like find the web of fear you know <laughs> maybe it's just but then so like and I mean kind of flipping and irreverent but then part of me was like do we have these like recovered episodes because of people with maybe obsessive compulsive mental disorders and hoarding tendencies and there was something that that, that felt a little bit you know I think there's an interesting ethical question that that happens with that because he, you know, he seemed like a very benign man, but he also seemed a bit um, kind of over, – not overwhelmed, but he, like he still didn't quite seem to be grasping – he seemed bemused by the whole thing. You know, like, what is this? I don't even know. I just collect this. and And I wish they had maybe – and maybe he would have gone into it, but I wanted to know the psychology of the collector who doesn't know what it is that he collects. And what joy, like, okay, yes, I've got all these, but I have read every single one of those books probably multiple times, apart from like some of the BBC stuff. Um, so I know what I've collected. And even if I have multiple copies, it's because I wanted a different cover and I wanted to have that sense of completeness. And I think as collectors, you know, many fans were collectors in one form or another. But I know what I have and I know why I have what I have and why I want it. And the idea, so the the psychology of collecting, I felt like there's maybe a missed opportunity there. And Yeah, and I like especially
1: that. as you've got Jan Vincent Rudsky on there as well, who definitely knew exactly what he'd got and why he'd got it and why he'd kept this bit of film from when they were doing um, the... Who is Doctor Who um, documentary and kept hold of that and knew the worth of it and kept that for 20-odd years without revealing that he'd got that until we had the Missing Years documentary when he very graciously gave it back to the BBC for the first time after never commenting that he'd got it for all those years before. Um, It's a very different... um, kind of relationship with the material than yeah. um the the other guy whose name is terry burnett according yes. to i've just had a look in the booklet there um, so that's a very different kind of relationship with the material yeah. and they're not doing the compare contrast thing but it definitely comes across and again is a lovely man i've met him a number of times sort of down the years and but there's always that little kind of mm, hang on, yeah. You've got this because you know it's unique and no one else has got this. And, and what else does your, he have? You know, <laughs> <inquiring> <laughs> minds want to know. And this is, yeah, and this is what goes through your head once you think, well, someone's kept this for for twenty odd years, nice and safe. Hang on, what else is in his in his drawer in a biscuit tin or whatever? Like he'd kept that film safe for all that time. <laughs> I mean it's brilliant that he he kept it and we've got that and he did give it back and we've got 10 minutes or whatever of um part 1 of Galaxy 4 which we wouldn't have without him but yeah it's just that well it's like and I think
3: yeah this is sort of crystallizing in my mind's eye now into there being sort of three archetypes of, of, of uh, people who hold this stuff there's there's the curators like yeah Rutsky, who's holding it and does intend to have to ensure it's put to good use at some point then there's the ones who are just amassing stuff and it happens to be part of the stuff that they amass and then there's the other ones we don't hear about but we all hear rumors that people you'll hear people say that if they know for a fact that there are three episodes out there that some swine has got and refu- is refusing to let go of because they enjoy having something that no I mean, one else. Huh. Secret
2: invite only viewings yeah. of Power of yeah. the
3: Dollar. Some basement in Slough or some <laughs> somewhere.
0: I mean, it, it comes down to that, that? You
3: know,
0: if you have the. We, we know for a fact that somebody lifted Web of Fear, Part Three from the Philip Morris Recovery Hall. Uh, you know, if if you read enough YouTube comments, you know there are stories that somebody is sitting on Marco Polo. There's rumors that somebody is, you know, sitting on other later Hartnell historicals that are lesser remembered that I won't name. There are stories that you hear through the grapevine of people who have these episodes and know exactly what they are and will not return them. So while Terry Burnett may have hoarding tendencies and maybe getting up to business unusual in his home, at least he returned the stories to us and we have it. So I am much happier to see Terry Burnett on disc and, you know, shame to the people who are sitting on – Uh, You know, Web of Fear Part 3 and will not let the rest of the the fans uh, see it. So, uh, I, again, uh, Trey said it, I've used the expression already, this is value added material. We are getting Galaxy 4, we are getting three different ways to watch the story, four if you include the text Mm -hmm. commentary, five if you include the commentaries. Lots and lots of variety. We have these two terrific documentaries. Uh, You have the trailer that was produced. So, it took me a very long time to get through this DVD and every minute of it was a delight. Again, I have some reservations about the animation. I have a greater appreciation for the story after the Derek Martinez material was returned. It is not, you know, it, there's so much amazing Hartnell stuff that this is not in my top half of Hartnell. But even second-tier Hartnell for me exceeds a lot of later eras of the show. So, for me, this disc was more than worth the purchase price, I could have paid five times as much and gotten an equal amount of enjoyment out of it. Don't tell him that. It's <laughs> true, but don't tell him. <laughs> we, we, we will, we will maybe redact that from the final recording. <laughs> um, but we are uh, just about getting ready to wrap up. Can I go around the table? Starting with Trey, what are your final thoughts of the galaxy Four disc and do not uh-huh. repeat what I said about being willing to pay five times as much. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> they know, they know. I, I really enjoy it. I just, um, I don't have any sort of like particularly insightful comment, um, but I think it's given how little exists of the story, what they created is just very remarkable and we're very fortunate to have it. Um, I hope that they find some way to keep these animations going because um, I know that's kind of in a strange place right now, but um, the fact that we can even watch a lot of these what we thought were missing stories now is just, and then all the value added material is just, what more could you want? We, you know, we wouldn't have even begun to imagine have this much. So I just feel very appreciative um, as a fan.
0: Si?
1: Um, it's It was wonderful to have a Hartnell animated story in full as well. and We've all really enjoyed the and stuff, but it's really nice to dip back into the era before. And at least if we're going out without a complete set of animations, at least they did one with him. And it probably wouldn't be the one that anyone would pick because we'd all instantly go for something bigger or better or more exciting or historical because it's a heart and all. but I'm really glad it's at galaxy four. It's not a top tier story, but it's just one I have a lot of love for and it was just a joy to actually sit down and watch it.
3: Yeah, it's a really, it's, it's great. And, and they they do really invest in a few really good big set pieces that seem the driving ship uh, and the, the big old climax uh, it, it is, is a spectacular bit of, bit of you know, creation that they've done uh, with the actual destruction of the planet. So yeah. It, and it still comes in lovely packaging and everything. They have really done, done well for it.
0: So, I want to thank my chumbly friends for coming on and (laughs) rapping about galaxy four with me. Uh, Hopefully we're not driving the audience crazy and we kept it real.
3: (laughs) Stranded (laughs) at the drive-in branded the fool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Where else else can we find y'all online or on other podcasts? Trey, I know you've been on some episodes of doctor who target book club podcast. I just was there for there with Tony and Dalton for the horns of Nyman novelization a couple of weeks ago. Where else can we see or hear you?
2: Um, just on Facebook and, you know, I'm on that. I've created a sub stack, but I haven't started writing for it yet. But I have some, um, you know, it's going to be called the Trey Agenda. And there will be a <laughs> section on that Doctor Who stuff. But again, like my thoughts on education, um, sexuality, politics, you know, the whole thing. So that's that's up and coming, but it's not there yet. So but that's where you could find me Hopefully mainly facebook soon. yeah
0: and Cy, i know you're on Love like gold. 17 different of the extended Joe Ford <laughs> podcast well, universe podcast. To, uh,
1: i'm not gonna give a list because i've given a list every time but you can find me on many episodes of trap one many episodes of a hamster with a blunt pen knife and in fact many episodes of your own podcast jason so which have all been an absolute joy to be a part of
0: you still are the all-time record holder for 20 questions. Mark made a run at you last week, but did not quite beat your uh, record of getting the story ah, in there seven we questions. Go. And Pete, you're coming <laughs> up on Doctor Who Literature next week for uh, book 28, Carnival of Monsters. Where else yeah. can we hear
3: you? My Doctor Who origin, thats that'll be a really fun one. Um, I, I follow in Simon's Wake uh, and go on any podcast that'll have me uh, and, or say hello to me on Twitter where I am prof underscore quite a mess.
0: We are all trailing in Simon's wig. I I say that honestly. (laughs) People keep asking me. I'll keep going. (laughs) So I'll just give a shout out. Doctor Who Literature is now available on iTunes. My very next episode is coming out the, the day after we record this. That is Pyramids of Mars. And my special guest for that episode is sadie miller very very excited getting to speak to her wow and then in two weeks for seeds of doom i'm not going to say who i have as a guest but you do not want to miss that that'll be episode 29 doctor who and the seeds of doom and thank you for joining us on another episode of the trap one podcast the executive producer of the trap one podcast is mark he also edited this episode you can find him on twitter at quark mcmallus uh we've already heard where we can find simon and pete and trey my thanks to the panel I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage. dr Who Pilgrimage currently in the final uh, season five of the Sarah Jane Adventures, followed quickly after by a series seven with uh, Matt Smith. Please check out Doctor Who Literature, and you can find us on Twitter at Trap1underscore, that's Trap1underscore. Then you can find all past episodes on trap1.podbean.com or your podcatcher of choice. Thank you for listening. Trap One will return with a new panel of guests and a new topic of conversation next week. We hope you come back and join them. Good night now.
3: Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>
0: bye.